Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from Hawaii, I'll be joined by legendary author Paul Thoreau on his views of tourism, a new definition of the word paradise, and what really constitutes a travel memory of a lifetime. Clifford Nioli is the Hawaiian cultural ambassador from the Ritz-Carlton, that's at Kapalua in Maui, and he's an old friend. What is he talking about? The power of storytelling and preserving the Hawaiian culture. And super Dr. Norm Eston on a post-COVID report from the islands. Lessons learned and lessons applied as the world tries to manage viruses, that's plural. And then Flip Nicklin, arguably the world's best whale photographer, sounds a note of hope as the whales have returned in greater numbers to Maui. First up, Paul Thoreau. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Uh, delete legendary, but uh, you can put down um, <laughs> reasonably happy. Reasonably uh, happy. And uh, aloha from... That's Aloha right. from the North Shore of uh, Oahu. I might add that Paul also happens to live in Hawaii, so thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, you did a book a couple of years ago, which has particular resonance now as we emerge from the pandemic and we reassess our priorities, and that was called The Tao of Travel. It's, you know, I, I like to say that people don't travel 
because they just want to travel. They travel because they need to travel. I always like to say that travel is not what I do, it's who I am and, and, and who a lot of people are. Where do you fit into yeah. that? I think I'm halfway between. I, I need to travel. I really, I, I, I like to get away. One of the reasons is I'm a novelist. I spend, when I'm writing a novel, all the time at my desk. Um, the desk is kind of neutral. It's like a bug cell. And I first became um, a, a, a travel writer, I suppose, when I realized that I was sitting at my desk and I, I needed to get away from my desk. I finished the book. I needed an idea for a book, but I really needed to get out and about. I would also say that, uh, you know, 60 years ago, I joined the Peace Corps and went to Central Africa. And that animated me and, and thought, I thought, um, I went to Neasaland. So this is 1963, as you can imagine. And you can imagine how much has changed. It, it took me two days to get there, stopping in Rome, Libya, Nairobi, and so forth. And that, that um, made me a traveler, and it made me want to live in a place, not just go and visit for a day, but to spend some time. Uh, so my idea of travel is also going to a place for a certain period of time. But in terms of needing to be away all the time, no, I'm not, I, I, <laughs> I don't have that. I don't have that kind of wanderlust, but I do have this. Uh, need to kind of relieve myself, which a lot of people have. I mean, it's, that's the whole nature of a vacation, which is your your home, you're among your you know you know with your family and your friends and so forth. And you think I need a change. I, I I have to get away. I want to see something else. I want to stimulate my mind. Well, and I know, think uh, that's where I am. Well, basically, to give you some background, Paul has done that time and time again with books like The Old Patagonian Express, The Mosquito Coast, which you know, of course, was done into uh, a television series as well. Uh, of course, the, uh, the one that I remember, of course, uh, Deep South, and, uh, and of course, the Grand Railway Bazaar, which was, which was iconic. Uh, his yeah. book, his book his, one of his more recent books in Hawaii, is called Under the Wave at Waimea. And your most recent book, what, The Bad Angel Brothers. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Count them, 50 plus books <laughs> um but uh, um yeah well i'm i'm an old man now so I, I, i'm still working if you if you live long enough you you fill your bookshelf but uh, in, in terms of getting away i still feel it um i think there's one thing about being growing older is you, you need solitude and you can often find solitude in in travel just going away and and and, and being away what i noticed in my last trip though um, you and I are both familiar with Silver Sea Cruises, and I took a Silver Sea Cruise from Bombay or Mumbai to Singapore. Then I went to the Maldives. And what struck me was how different travel has become among wealthy people, among luxury travelers. Uh, and even among, you know, not necessarily um, very wealthy, but, but upscale travelers or perhaps just travelers like you and me. It's the desire to be barefoot. It's the desire to, to live for a period of time in a bathing suit or shorts. And where it used to be, um, something related to going, sitting in a, a gilded chair or you know, on a velvet cushion, uh, wearing a three-piece suit, it's now much more um, informal, um, much more in terms of the open air, uh, much more 
just I think of the barefoot traveler now as a luxury traveler. Well, somebody who who wants to immerse themselves in the culture, despite their background and despite their level of income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, that very much. And also, I think a lot of people work in offices or their their home. Um, they're living in in, in fairly formal. Um, cultures and, and situations where they need to dress up. The idea of, of travel has become um, a way of divesting yourself, of, of, of just wearing pure clothes, of, as I say, walking around in sandals and, and, and doing something which is the opposite of what you do, uh, you know, on, a, on an everyday basis. I mean, that was just struck me because I always thought of in the past in a conventional way, maybe a cliche, but luxury is kind of, you're in the George Sank or you're at the Claridge's or something like that in London. And, and that's what luxury is. But it's, luxury is the Maldives. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a, a beach where you are. You're, you're at the Ritz-Carlton in, in, uh, in Maui. Maui. Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, you don't have to. Right? You could just wear a, a, an Aloha shirt and sandals. And, I mean, that's many people's idea of paradise. Of, it's mine, right? The other kind of travel, which is immersing yourself in a culture, is uh, you go to a place with a different language. You, you, you want to learn the language, learn about the culture, listen to the music. That's, that's slightly different. That's not the quest for solitude. That's, that's uh, enlightenment, I think. Well, in the wake of the pandemic, and I've always said this for the last, what, two years, that you know, beware of the law of unintended consequences, uh, people had to... People had the time. You mentioned time. People had the time to reassess themselves, their lot in life, their their income, their quality of life, their location of life, uh, their own mortality, if you will. And so that when they could travel again, they came out with a completely different perspective and certainly a different bucket list. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's the reboot of the pandemic. It's the reboot of, of COVID, which is when you're home, you're 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 uh, contemplative, you're actually stuck. I mean, uh, it couldn't go out in, in Hawaii. We couldn't go to the beach. I got a ticket from a policeman <laughs> on a beach in Hawaii. I said, what am I doing wrong? He said, you're sitting on the beach. I said, is that against the law? He said, yeah, the governor has an edict. Uh, no beach going. So no, no, imagine, no one in Hawaii could use a beach for, for quite a period of time. And I had <laughs> I have to pay two hundred dollars for my ticket, but actually, it gave me something to think about. Which, you, if you can't go to the beach, then after, when you're allowed to travel, when you're allowed to, to get out, what is it that you really want to do? So, you um, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. That is that people um, they reconfigured their bucket list, so they thought, you know, suddenly um, this trip doesn't seem as attractive as as that one, and then. And then, it, and the, the imperative to just get out of the house was, was very important. Also, I think to be alone that that people began to be suspicious of crowds. So I think they they didn't go to cities. They didn't go to, to densely populated places because we associate densely populated places with germs, or with with uh, you know possible infection. I mean, that's one of the effects of the uh, of the pandemic is that people moved out of cities. So. Yeah, travel has changed in that in radically because of the pandemic. Hawaii, of course, a tourism-dependent economy. 
No doubt about that. Always has been. Always will be. But the real question is not whether there's going to be growth, not whether people are coming back to Hawaii, but how they're going to come back and how the growth gets managed in a way that it doesn't damage the the, the, the landscape, doesn't damage the environment, doesn't damage the culture, and that allows people to experience the true essence of the islands. So from your vantage point, Paul, now that travel is back and the planes are full, I mean, you know, every, every plane that was coming to Maui when, when I was on it was full. There was a one-hour wait even to get to a gate in Maui, so that'll give you an idea of the numbers we're talking about. What's changed, if anything, now that people are coming back? The main thing is that um, the, the numbers are pretty much uh, what they were before the pandemic. There are 10 million tourists annually to Hawaii. That has um, uh, one of the things the pandemic showed was that with fewer tourists, um, the place is actually much more pleasant. So the, the, the people are back. They're, in, they're back in, in, in the same numbers. And I think because Hawaii is now, is, is seen, its virtues are seen. It's a healthy, beautiful place with lovely weather. And you, one of the things the pandemic showed was how important time is. That wasting time is, is a terrible thing. People thought, I've got plenty of time before the pandemic. During the pandemic, they thought, you know, maybe we don't have as much time as we think. Maybe we should maximize our, our opportunities. So I think one of the significant ways is that people spread to different parts of the island. So they, 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 um, they went to Honolulu, but then they, they branched out or they went to, they, 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 they ceased going to the large population areas. That's one. The other is, uh, the Airbnbs um, proliferated, and so a lot of people are staying there. And so you see more people in the supermarkets buying food. The beaches are pretty full uh, on the whole, but we have a lot of beaches. So uh, it, it, it doesn't in the least resemble the kind of crowded beach that you would get anywhere on the mainland. But I wrote, I've written three books related to Hawaii. One was Hotel Honolulu, a novel. The other is The Happy Isles of Oceania, and my most recent Hawaii-related novelist, Under the Wave of Maimea. In some respects, I don't say they're dated, but rereading them, you'd see a different Hawaii. You'd see a, a, a smaller uh, number of, of tourists. Um, you'd see a, a kind of a more community-oriented places. Now, uh, there, are, there are communities in kind of remote places, in, you know, happy little communities on the island, which now are commercialized by Airbnb. So I think the hotels are fine. You know, they, they, they've got the hotel availability is, is always been pretty healthy. But the neighborhoods see an influx of people that they never saw before. They see strangers. They see more cars. They see, you know, a kind of activity related to uh, rentals, the, the whole rental initiative. So that's a, that's a big shock to a lot of people. But uh, a lot of uh, people in charge in Hawaii are thinking, how can we limit the number of planes? How can we limit the number of tourists? And how can we prevent it from being uh, overrun? You're in a lovely place. I mean, you're not being overrun. And you're, you're at the Ritz-Carlton. So uh, that and, you know, the, the great hotels will always be iconic and uh, visited. 
Right, but you know what? But, but you know what, Paul? The, the the infrastructure though is being challenged. Uh, there are only so many gates that they have at the airport in Maui. The road is still only two lanes. Uh, you know, you you don't want to be in a situation where you 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 escape the traffic on the four hundred five in Los Angeles only to land in the traffic in uh, in Maui. So I, I think it's a consideration whether there are people who are renting in communities or staying at hotels where they have to figure out a way to spread out the season or at least do so in a way that people get the experience that they've always wanted. That's true. And there used to be a time, wasn't that long ago, when there were slack periods, they're called the shoulder season, which, uh, which you're well aware of, where, where there weren't many tourists. So you'd see uh, Golden Week, which, which is when the Japanese tourists came. And, and then, then Christmas would cover the year, a lot of people. And then after Christmas, they'd be kind of quiet. It, the roads would be empty. Now there's, there's no slack season. There's no shoulder season. It, and, and I agree with you. The infrastructure is challenged. That um, it could take you... I had a dental appointment in, in Honolulu, and I driving into town. Uh, I missed the appointment. I had to call ahead and say, I can't make it. There's too much traffic. So I, um, I was in Tahiti long ago. It was actually in the 80s. And I remember uh, they only had one, you know, one small road around Tahiti. Uh, and uh, going from Papiete around, there was a solid line of traffic. And I thought, this is amazing. Here's a quiet little island. But, but there's a solid line of traffic because they've only got you know, this two-lane road and there's a lot of cars. That wasn't the case in Hawaii, but I was getting to the point where the traffic is, is really a challenge, it's really a problem, and people remark on it all the time. When you have a tourism-dependent economy, you really have to manage growth, or it becomes sort of a latter-day Ibsen play where uh, you know you lose the very thing that people are trying to come to in the first place. Yes, that's true. I, I, uh, one of my fond um, mots in the past was when a place is described as paradise, it quickly becomes purgatory and eventually turns into hell. Don't call a place paradise. Everyone want to go there. People say to me, what's your favorite beach? I always say, I'm going to tell you my third favorite beach. Because if I tell you my favorite beach, everyone's going to be there. It'll, it will be overrun. And I think travel in your business, which is eye on travel, analyzing it, something I'm not good at. What's happening now is people thinking, how can we manage it? How can we reduce the number of people traveling to certain places? How can we get, could be, it used to be just a free-for-all. And what you're describing with the number of gates and the, uh, and the, and the roads and so forth, that free-for-all has to stop. It has to be managed. I think Singapore has done a very good job in managing what is, in effect, a very small island that they've managed to make it much more beautiful than when I lived there. And the infrastructure, which is buses, the metro, taxis, the whole thing, it's very, very easy to get around. We're very late here at Oahu in getting a rail, what they call a heavy rail, which will go to the airport. It hasn't even started running yet, but I mean, that's very, they're very late in having it. So I think management is probably the future. It is the future or there won't be a future. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. There are limited resources and, you know, you reach this point of diminishing return where the very people that you want to come won't come. You know, in terms of environmental regulations that need to be in place, we haven't yep. even talked about housing for the people who work here and, yep. and, and of course, accessibility for everybody. I just hope that, you know, Hawaii doesn't get to the point where it prices itself out of the market, uh, where it does become accessible once again and that people realize that you can have a sustainable tourism economy if it's available to everybody. Yes, that's right. 
And what you say about maintenance, very important housing, which is you can't run an island if the people on the island can't afford to live there. Nantucket is an example of a place which has priced itself way, way out of the market. So working people go there and live in dormitories. Well, they, we can't have that in Hawaii. And so there's a, the price of houses is very high here. But you need people to be able to afford to a place, to, to maintain it, to, to run the hotels, to run the restaurants, and to work there. Also to teach in the schools and, and, and all the rest of that. I still say that Hawaii has always struck me as Main Street USA in Polynesia and a Polynesian version of Main Street USA. And it's still that. It's still friendly. The weather's beautiful. And honestly, I, I've spent my whole traveling life looking for a wonderful place to live. And I felt in Hawaii, I found it. The important thing now is to make it as good as it always has been. I mean, that's, that's a challenge. But I, there, there are really, there's no other place on earth that I've seen where I thought I could live here for a long period of time. And, um, you know, as an older person, get good medical care and, and have friendly people. And local people among the friendliest in the world. I go paddling my uh, outrigger canoe twice a week with local with Hawaiians and I, where else would I be able to do that yep you know what you just want not just great medical care and friendly people you want friendly medical care <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true that's true too and of course one thing that I hope continues here is the the uh, the, the, the the concentration and the focus on storytelling on continuing to tell the Hawaii story from generation to generation, from family to family, so that's not lost. Yeah, that's important. Well, actually, um, there are the, the, the storytelling is related to an activity, and hula is never been more important or involved with with with, uh, with more people. So there's there's a festival every year. People do it. They do it for health. They do it for culture. Also, paddling. There are paddling clubs, there are the, the hooies of, uh, uh, where they go in 10, 10 person canoes. So I, the other day I saw little kids training to go in a 10 person canoe. So in Haleiwa, where I am, there are, every other day there are eight canoes that go out. Well, that's, that's part of storytelling too. It's part of a community activity. Um, it's also not part of the tourist, <laughs> the tourist, uh, economy either. It, it, they're, they're local people who go out. All, you know, big, small, old, local, you know, and they're in the, the, the canoe paddling. Local, you know, baseball and basketball is important too. But when I see people go out in a canoe, I was, I'm thinking they've been doing that for a thousand years here. A thousand years paddling canoe, you know, going out in, in a canoe. And I think, well, that's continuity for you. My thanks to Paul. Most visitors to Hawaii stay at their resorts and never even venture out. And if they do, maybe it's a day trip that goes one place and comes back. They do so without knowing the history or the culture of the islands. But Clifford Nioli is a walking encyclopedia of culture and history, not to mention being a great storyteller himself. Clifford, so great to talk to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As I said, always a pleasure to speak to the master sommelier of travel, Mr. Peter Greenberg. Welcome home, sir. <laughs> 
All right, I'll accept that only because it comes from you. But forgetting that for a second, my age-old question is when you have a tourism-dependent economy like Hawaii and you have such great history and culture and you have such mass visitation, it's got to be a continuing challenge for you, perhaps even a growing challenge for you to try to maintain the culture. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's uh, things have changed drastically in the last few years. As you know, um, we've adopted this new slogan called surrender yourself to the wild so what's happening now is instead of people coming here to observe the culture and look at it as a as almost a, a movie or a video now we're trying to explain to people that nature and hawaii is watching them what is it that they contribute when they come to hawaii how will they leave a footprint in our sand what kind of legacy will they establish so that it makes hawaii a greater place for all people not just uh, the culture and then the and, and, and the people, but for all, for the visitors, what is it that they come for here that they can find themselves and leave a legacy so that Hawaii prospers and remains Hawaii and grows and grows and grows so that we all become benefactors of this beautiful place. And so it, 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 it's, it's a change in attitude. And what kind of answers are you getting? Well, we're getting, you know, I, I really, really do see people coming here, whether they be FITs or groups that are always questioning what can i do that's authentic what can i do to leave a legacy so we'll say simple things take your shoes off and walk in the sand and leave a love letter in the sand take a photograph and send it off or go to our uh, our heights up in the mountains and uh, remove alien species and replace with endemic species plant a canoe so that in 20 30 years your generation your next generations can come and say my family planted this tree it's going to become a canoe and it leaves a sense of belonging as, you know, my, you know I, I'm, I'm a utopian, I'm a, I'm a Libra, and I'm an optimist. So whenever, uh, I, I like to work in a we thinking, and so when they come here and they contribute, they're part of the team. They become part of this canoe, this great canoe of Hawaii that moves forward. Of course, so much of Hawaii generationally has been storytelling, of course, I first yeah. learned about Talk Story about 40 years ago uh, at, uh, at one of the parks in, in Oahu. At the end of the day, we, I went out with the locals and we just sat around and we talked story. Yeah. Um, that's how I learned about it. But it's really how, exactly. how the story continues to be told from generation to generation, from family member yeah. to family member. But it's not just verbal. It's visual. No. It's hula. It's, it's yeah. right. It's, it's so many different ways. Right. And that's because we, we need to remember that we, we, the Hawaiians really had no written language. Everything was expressed by body movement, by chanting, by singing, uh, by doing. And in these things, they represented the past and the present. And therefore, the talk story, per se, comes from this. But we just passed down the, the genealogy. We passed down the stories of what was. And then hopefully this next generation, again, will absorb it and pass that forward as well. So talk story is extremely important. Uh, it's called more level. The ability to uh, understand what was, the ability to understand what is, and even more the responsibility to pass it on. And to preserve it. Uh, in terms yes. of even the physical sites, even, even the ancient burial sites, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know... Um, it exists in Hawaii. It is it is a controversial topic at times, of course, because of supply and demand. 
you know, everybody wants to build a home, etc. But, you know, there will be uh, some intrusion upon sites. So, thankfully, uh, we have now laws in place that will protect the sanctity and dignity of the Ivi Kupuna, those who were here first. And it has become much more accepted and uh, respected. That's the main thing is that uh, you respect what was. Exactly. And, you know, I remember my first days going out way out west to Fiji and I was uh, and I was presented with Taupa which was mm-hmm. from the bark of the tree it was how they told their story in painting and then right. later on I was given a wooden storyboard which told the and, and the carving on that board told the entire story of their village which of course is throughout Polynesia and it's in Hawaii right. and it's in Hawaii as well yes absolutely and, and the, the artistic forms and then, then you think about it now, when they can do this on a piece of paper and at the same time memorize the, memorize the star systems in their mind, memorize the currents, the winds, the fishes, the temperature of the seas, and to move forward with these all without any type of uh, written uh, document, it's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. It is. And, and in fact, that's a tradition that continues in those islands today. Uh, you just need yes. to go out there into the small villages to experience it for yourself. One of the things yes. I experience with you when I come here is, you know, Hawaii is known for the traditional sundown service and the and the playing of the conch and and the and the telling of the story. But what you do is different. When I hang out with you, I'm out there at five thirty in the morning. And <laughs> right, we're out there wading into the ocean at 5.30 in the morning for you to tell that story, right? Right. And that's called Hiuvai. And Hiuvai is returning to the the waters of Mother to have her take away all your, uh, all your burden from the days gone by. And so she washes you. And it's like you're being reborn again. Then we go on to the shore and we chant Eava which rises the sun which represents the birthing canal that opens and now we're reborn again. We're rejuvenated. We have a chance to say, all right, I understand what I did yesterday. Let's correct it today. Make the world a better place. My thanks to Clifford. Whenever I want medical advice, I seek out Dr. Norm Eston. In the interest of full disclosure, I grew up with him in New York and his father also treated me. Then Norm got smart many years ago and moved to Maui where no one understands travel medicine better than Doc Maui. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Dr. Norman Eston, welcome. Peter, welcome back. Nice to have you here. And nice to be here. You're my go-to guy. I have to tell you, I don't travel without talking to Dr. Norm, and so many of our friends do the same, simply because he knows what you should be doing. He also knows what you shouldn't be doing in terms of even what you pack in terms of proper medical care or preventive medical care. Uh, and we're not talking about going with two satchels full of pills. We're talking with having a, the kind of emergency medical needs that you can actually supply in a small package when you need to go anywhere. And I thank you for that. But let's go back to the days, uh, the last time I even saw you here on this island in the midst of COVID. I mean, Maui was sort of, you know, it was lockdown central. I mean, you know, we, we heard earlier, you know, you, from, from Paul Thoreau, I mean, you couldn't even go to the beach. You'd get a ticket. So it was so tough because the rules kept changing. The government kept changing policies. We, we, we looked in the old days, you know, you know, all the agricultural items you couldn't bring into or out of Hawaii. Well, we became the agricultural item you couldn't come into and out of Hawaii with. Now people are coming back. What's changed? I tell you, it's been a whirlwind the last few years. Um, Peter, I remember when you were here just before the pandemic uh, got going. And uh, very rapidly in the first couple of months, we uh, shut off the air uh, lift to Maui. Uh, we kept people indoors, kept them isolated. And uh, it was a grueling few months uh, for the people who here. Uh, there was no business. There were no visitors. Um, and there were, we depended on federal and state support for survival. But we kept the numbers down. Uh, we're, we're one of the five best states in the whole country uh, in terms of uh, mortality or morbidity from uh, COVID over the last few years. So we've been very, very fortunate. What's happened now is uh, amazing. The, uh, air traffic is back. Visitor counts are coming back. Uh, people uh, have built up uh, a desire to take a break, uh, to be in public, to be outside, um, to be social, and uh, more than anything, uh, to be on the sun and in the beach. Uh, the, the sad news is that uh, we are essentially over COVID and, and gets very little coverage now on the media, but COVID is not over us. Um, most of these airborne epidemics last five years, and we're somewhere between year and three and four in this. So we're still seeing people with COVID every day uh, on every island, in every state, in every country. Uh, they're not as sick as they used to be. They don't have the numbers that they used to be, but it's going to be around and it's going to take another two years for this to fade into the background of respiratory illnesses. So what you're saying is we're at the stage now where we're managing it. Exactly. And it's being managed differently around the world. Now, I just came back from a trip to Asia, and in Asia, uh, people are masking up everywhere routinely, uh, if they're sick or not, indoors and outdoors. In the United States, that's just not going to happen. Well, we just don't have the the, the frame of mind to, to wear masks. Or the discipline. Or the discipline to wear masks. So uh, I think uh, other countries are somewhere in between. Uh, but this is an airborne virus, uh, and, and it, it spread uh, very quickly because of uh, air travel. Uh, air travel brings us many things. Uh, some of them are good, some of them are not so good, and that's one of the problems with uh, these airborne germs. All right, so now I mean, what's inevitable is people are back, people are having fun, they're outside, they're exploring, they're not wearing their masks. But for, as a general rule, doctor, what medicines... Not, I mean, I, I, everybody has their own pre-existing condition issues, but as a general rule, what medicines should anybody be traveling with? 
Well, I think uh, just to finish up with the COVID, uh, if uh, you've had the basic vaccination series, which is uh, at least three, uh, or uh, if you're uh, over 70 uh, and you've had the new bivalent booster as well, you're as protected as you're going to be uh, from uh, getting COVID and having a complication that puts you in the hospital uh, or worse, kills you. So that, there's nothing's 100%, but that's the first thing you want to do. The second thing is uh, use your common sense. If you're around a lot of people or a lot of coughing people or sneezing people, there's no reason not to wear a mask. And I mean, every all of us have been on a plane and there's been somebody who's uh, coughing and hacking in the seat behind us. Uh, wouldn't you feel a lot better if they had a mask on? Of course you would. So use your common sense that way. And in terms of traveling and being in a resort, they're all very safe now. There's no need for uh, the physical uh, barriers like plexiglass. And, uh, and most people who are working uh, in the resorts or vacation areas aren't going to be wearing masks, and that's probably okay. But in healthcare facilities, you're going to still be encountering that. Now let's go back to the question I just asked you. When I'm traveling, what should I take with me? Well, you know, um, I'd say that the, most people remember their medicines, but you'd be surprised how many of them put them in their check-in luggage and don't have them on the carry-on. And there's not a day that goes by that we don't have to call in refills because luggage, as you know, doesn't always make it to the destination along with the passenger. So that's the first thing. Make sure you take your regular medicines uh, with you in your carry-on bag. Can I go one step beyond? If you're flying overseas, make sure you get a letter from your doctor authorizing you to have those medicines naming the generic name of the drug because a lot of overzealous customs folks don't know what these are. That's absolutely right, especially for any kind of pain medicine or uh, controlled substance. All right, so that's the first thing. Keep going. The second thing is most people need probably a couple of Band-Aids and uh, something like Tylenol or an aspirin. That's what you're really going to need. Uh, if you, uh, you have something else going on, you're probably going to have to seek medical attention. If you're on a prolonged trip, especially to a country that may not have accessible, high-quality medical care, you may want to take a small little emergency kit that's got one or two pills of four or five different varieties uh, for common medical conditions, and your doctor or medical provider could provide that easily. These uh, medicines will fit into tiny little mini Ziploc bags, and you could compress the whole batch of them into something about the size of a uh, an Altoids can, a little, you know, the, the size of a deck of cards. So uh, you don't have to take a whole giant medicine cabinet with you. And the point is, though, you should. I mean, take that, what you just said. I think it makes sense, especially uh, to get you started if you're overnight somewhere away from medical care. Uh, and in, in this day and age, one, we all travel with a smartphone. And two, most of us have a medical provider uh, that we can reach on that phone. Uh, we do a lot of telemedicine here. And if you happen to be in Hawaii and you can't get a hold of your own doctor and you need something, you can go to our website, and, and uh, which is docmaui.com, and we'll, we'll do, take care of your needs on telemedicine. Most medical practices and most urgent cares around the country are doing that now. And you need to do that because we're traveling more than we ever did before. 
more than ever. And, um, you know, we want the same conveniences at home that we have at home when we travel. We want all the smartphone abilities. We want uh, to be able to talk to our loved ones. We want to be able to uh, touch base with uh, what's happening at home. My thanks to Norm. Want some good news? The whales are back to Maui in larger numbers. World-class photographer Flip Nicklin not only knows the numbers, he knows the whales. He's been photographing them for decades. And for the moment, at least, he's happy. Flip Nicklin, how are you, sir? I'm just fine, bitter. And how are the whales this year? They're great. It's been uh, a, a wonderful year. I mean, this is our second year back after missing a season for the pandemic. Well, the last time I saw you doing this show, actually, was three years ago. Yeah. And, right and, right uh, before the pandemic. Miss, missing that year was, was tough. But the last two years has been great. And lots of new stuff is coming out and being published. So our story of Wales is constantly changing and filling in the missing bits. And that's fun. Now, when you're not here, you're living in Alaska. Yes. Uh, Ock Bay, just north of Juneau. And they have a few whales there, too. They're the same whales. Some of the same whales out there feed, feeding there rather than uh, mating and breeding as much. Which kind of whales? Humpback whales. Well, we have humpback whales. We have killer whales, the two that are around us the most. But, of course, if you go up to uh, up in Vancouver Island, you're going to see the pods of the orcas. Yes. Uh, well, orcas, killer whales, uh, same. Right. We have a different grouping, but they're, uh, we have fish eaters and marine mammal eaters both in our area. And here? You know, we saw killer whales once years ago there, there probably are killer whales on the windward side of the big island eating tuna but very seldom in these shallows but we have lots of humpback whales and on the big islands you got uh sperm whales and some of the beaked whales some of the real exotics in the deep water drop off i mean we're, we're sitting here at the ritz carlton but if you sit up on the lounge and you just keep your eyes fixed on the horizon you're going to see one breach you, you, you see lots of humpback whales. You can see dolphins going by once in a while. What a great place to sit and have a coffee or have a drink and, and watch the world go by. What have you, in all these years, what have you learned about whale behavior that may have changed in, in the last couple of years, especially in this region? I, th I think the biggest thing started right on my first job in 79, that we could find whale behavior and actually study it, find the animals, and uh, photograph them while they were doing it, which was unheard of before 1979. Well, but let's go back to 79 for a second. When you were first photographing them, obviously it was a brave new world for you. It was also a brave new world for them. Did they let you get close? Well, that was on March 10th, 1979. We were, everyone knew about singers. And Jim Darling, the guy I still work with, was recording singers and taking pictures of their tails. Explain the singers. Singing humpback whales. We've heard the song, whale song. It's usually humpback whale song. It's that melodious song played to Congress in 1970. One of the things that uh, just inspired our interest in whales trying to communicate with us. So we knew they were singing. I mean, once you heard the song, you couldn't ignore it. I mean, exactly. You, 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 I mean, the popular support of it, more than the science even, got people wanting to know what were they doing, what were they trying to say. The March 10th, 1979, we could hear the whale and take a picture of the tail, and when the whale went down, Jim looked down and could see the whale was stopped down below the surface. And they called me over, I was a big free diver, and asked me if I could dive down. Which meant you had no fear. No, <laughs> Which meant you had no fear. No, I, 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 uh, I guess I, I, I had no air. I had a snorkel well, and a big breath. If you have no air, you have no fear. Well, it, it, You're going to have fear. I had fear. I didn't know, I didn't know how <laughs> loud they were. And, and when Jim asked me to dive down below its tail and take a picture of its genitals, seemed like a good idea at the time. But they were down about 50 feet. And Let me see if got, I get this straight. 
you have no air supply, right? And they want you to dive down yeah. below the whale yeah. and take a picture of its genitals. Yes, and it's not knowing you're coming. Uh, no, no. Well, that's what happened. As, as I, I went, said, you had no fear. As, yeah. as I went down there, the, the whale got louder and louder. As I went by the tail, which I had to go under to shoot the picture of the genitals, the tail started to rise up above me. And I was sure it was going to pound me into the sand. But what it was doing was looking back under its pectoral to see who was blowing bubbles on its genitals. And uh, didn't seem to mind that much. And you're now married? <laughs> I am now. <laughs> no, to the whale. No, 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 no. <laughs> But that, and we did that, and for for a couple of years, I came back. That led to us finding out the singers were males, and that we could find whales and find out more about them, and changed everything in the way we did things. And of course, as that was 1979, so we're talking what 44 45, years. 44 yeah. years. Yeah. Wow! And in those 44 years, have we deciphered more of the songs? We know all kinds of things. It's not. Well, actually, what happened when, the, in we, when we found out the males were singing, the assumption was almost immediately they must be calling females over on the breeding grounds. And probably we started doing other things around the world, Jim and I. We came back in 1996, and the first thing we did was go up and look at singers and see who, see who came up to the singers, and it was other males. And it, somewhere, I think the songs involved with mating, it's not a direct call to females to come over to them. And that's the kind of questions you so ask So we know what it's not. We know what it's not. And, uh, and we know it's happening a lot more places. Just a couple of years ago, if you look on the maps from National Geographic and places, you see a few dots in Mexico and Hawaii and maybe Japan on where whales go back and forth to the north. So we had remote vehicles going between here and Mexico and found out there are singing whales for a thousand miles east of here. So they're not just at the places with airports. They're spread out much more than we thought they were or knew they were. Now, you may not have been able to decipher the songs, but one of the things you were able to do was study their behavior. Yes. And in one case, figure out that these are unselfish animals. Oh, the altruistic stuff is really exciting stuff. And Bob Pittman, the big guy, has done a bunch of that. But the fact that you've seen the pictures of killer whales or orcas washing seals off the ice in the Antarctic. Humpback whales are going in there and picking, up, pick, picking them up on their bellies and sort of challenging the, challenging the killer whales to come in. They're doing the same so thing with gray whales. Them. They're protecting other species, which is really interesting stuff. You know, and, and much different than the sort of gentle giants floating. Not do, these are interesting animals, and we're just starting to get a peek at what their social systems are beyond their hair breathing and showing their tail. And, of course, you're also tracking them better. All the tracking stuff is, yeah, well, this, the, the machine we used to look for whales between here and Mexico was a high-tech, self-powered surfboard with a bunch of gear on it that went between here and Mexico and had voice-actuated microphones, so every time it heard a song, it recorded it. And so it went it along. It was a surfboard. A surfboard. And it, and it survived? A $500,000 surfboard with a bunch of cool stuff on it. But yes, it survived and, uh, and came back, and then we sent it to Asia, and the same thing happened. So it sort of spread out where whales are singing, and uh, and then after that, there's another paper came out last year showing that some of the whales are both here and Mexico in the same season, going back and forth before they go north again. Wow, so they're triangulating it. It's just, it's little pieces. It, just, it all just shows it's much more complicated and, and combined than we would have originally known. But the fact that the whales are coming to Maui, they've been doing it for how many thousands of years? I don't know, a long time. But, 
But the cool thing, this year uh, here at the Ritz, we had a bunch of people coming in from around the North Pacific that study whales in, in the Philippines, in Japan, in Mexico, and Nicaragua. And all those guys are looking at humpback whales in the breeding season like we do here, but they had subtle differences. The one thing that they said most about coming here is how many whales there were here in Maui and how much better the conditions were to actually look down and see what they were doing through the water. And that's a clearer picture. That's a tremendous deal. And you do that every year here. Every year. On this series, 27 years and uh, 17 years back at the Ritz doing whale tales every year. Wow. And, and, And the whales get turned down service and chocolates too? I, I think so. They, they seem I just very happy know. with just, the whole thing. Well, we, we, there's all kinds of little, a new thing this year. And, and as people have talked about, we find out they are taking some snacking here. So there's some room service here. <laughs> so they're not eating like up north, but they are eating something here. But they came back. So, I mean, because we talked about we, we we're confronted with global warming and climate change, but it hasn't changed their patterns to coming here. No. And and one of those things is that they're probably doing a lot more interesting things, different places, not just here. But I think when we started in the 70s, maybe there were 1,500 humpbacks in the North Pacific, and now it's probably 25,000. They've done very, very well. My thanks to Flip, to Paul Thoreau, to Clifford Nioli, and Dr. Norm Eston. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just say aloha and then log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.